Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. In this episode, we're going to talk about climate change, but it's for for a very good reason, Keith. This is a very big issue for a lot of younger people in Australia mm. and all over the world. But for the older generations, it seems to have dropped off the radar. A few years ago, it was the key issue in, in an election in 2007, one of the key issues. Yeah. And it's completely dropped off the radar, even to the point of having worked in commercial media for a very long time, and particularly commercial television for the last few years, it is very apparent that audiences don't necessarily want to know about climate change stories. It's almost like it's, it, they turn off. Yep. But it's important, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's never been more important. <clears throat> in fact, Ian Dunlop, my colleague in the Club of Rome, in a recent report called Disaster Alley, Climate Change, Conflict and Risk, is actually trying to expand our perception of the size of the problem and to see that this is an existential threat to uh, the earth. Existential meaning a threat to our entire existence. I think part of the problem, getting back to your opening comment about public perception, you're right, young people do feel this, you know, the Extinction Rebellion is attracting large numbers of young people. We've got one young Swedish girl, I don't even think she's a teenager yet, who's being nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize because she started a campaign to boycott school on a, on a Friday as a mark of protest. But you're right, amongst older people, there is a, a sense of just boredom. They don't want to uh, don't want to hear about it. I think there are a number of reasons for this. One is that as you get older, you become much more reconciled to risks. In other words, that when you reach a certain age, you've lived through so many changes and you survived. You therefore tend to become very complacent. So that um, for somebody of my age, we've we've lived through the Cold War, the uh, duck and cover exercises we had at school in the event of a nuclear explosion we had to get under our desks which wouldn't have done us any good whatsoever but anyway we had the duck and cover and yet looking back on it we say well the cold war ended there was no nuclear war nuclear war was avoided and and as you get older if you survive uh, well into middle age then you tend to say well look i've survived previous issues Somehow or other, we will continue to operate. That's one explanation why I think older people are so complacent. I think a second is the inadequate media reporting. In other words, the media don't tell the truth. They provide balance. So they leave it to the reader or viewer or listener to make sense. John Oliver, who's a British comedian on American television, has a very good segment on YouTube talking about a statistically representative discussion of climate change. And he says, what happens with climate change on American television is that you always end up with somebody who thinks there is a problem with climate change and is often a guy called Bill Nye, the science guy, wears a very distinctive bow tie. Um, Did you mean to rhyme all of that, No, I didn't. You're trying to ham up the whole topic of climate change. Bill Nye, the science guy, that's his slogan. (laughs) And then you always have some other dude who's not necessarily a scientist at all. And you'd see them on the screen. It's always Bill Nye versus some other dude, as John Oliver says. And so people sitting at home take the view, well, there must obviously be a division of opinion among scientists because here you've got two people on the screen equally balanced. But in fact, 97% of scientists agree that there is a problem with human-made 
climate change. In other words, it's the behaviour that we've gone into since the Industrial Revolution beginning in 1750, particularly in more recent decades. We are triggering this, at least in human history, unprecedented growth of, of carbon gases, etc., in the atmosphere warming up the earth. And so he has in what he calls the statistically representative debate on climate change. So along with a, an actor playing a climate change denier, he brings on two other people. And then to sit beside Bill Nye, the science guy, he brings on 96 other people. And he says this, all wearing white coats, because that's the uniform of scientists, he's saying this is what the, uh, the real world should look like because it shows overwhelmingly 97% of scientists agree there's a problem with climate change. So I think another reason why people have difficulty understanding climate change is simply that they see these two faces on the screen in balance and, and assume that there's an equally divided scientific community, which in fact there's not. Uh, yet another reason I think why people don't get the, the climate change argument is that Scientists are very bad communicators. So there's a book that I recommend when I'm giving talks to scientists called Randy Osborne, Don't Be Such a Scientist. So they're like engineers. And they're engineers, they're scientists, <laughs> they live in their heads. They don't know how to communicate properly. And I think that, in a sense, the debate, particularly in Australia and the United States, the debate has been lost because it's the scientists who are just over-educated talking to lay people who stopped studying science when they left school. And they don't, they don't break down the information to make it accessible and exactly. understandable or relatable even. It just exactly. use this high-level corporate kind of speak or speak yeah. that you just no one understands. Exactly. And I think yet another explanation for the problem is that the issue of climate change is not necessarily just one of science but also politics. So in other words, that you have vested interests who are wanting to avoid having action taken against climate change obviously the big energy corporations and energy unions for that matter. Uh, they've got a lot of jobs. If you look at somewhere like um, um, the production of coal in this country, we have 600 years supply of good quality coal. Um, the, the reserve of coal begins around Wollongong, moves up the east coast of Australia and into central Queensland, the Galilee Basin. It's an excellent supply of coal and so... Obviously, there are a lot of coal and other energy interests who are saying we've got jobs relying upon continuing mining of coal. And quite often, a lot of environmental issues come down to jobs or the environment. So we've somehow got to change the debate, reframe the debate, so that environmental protection is seen as generating new jobs. See, one of the problems that Barack Obama created by closing down coal mines was that you ended up with unemployed coal miners. They are the ones who voted for Donald Trump, who promised to reopen coal mines. Now, he's not been able to do that. The nature of the employment in the coal industry in the United States shows a continuing decline in the number of people actually working in the coal industry. The mines are being killed by market forces. A lot of people are deciding not to have coal mining or coal as their energy source. Uh, you've got finance houses who are talking about coal as a stranded asset. In other words, yes, it's an asset, but it's stranded because you won't be able to get customers for it. And so in a sense, the energy industry are fighting back by trying to minimise the nature of the danger coming from climate change. So there are a number of reasons why people don't get a full perception of the risk of climate change. 
This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Suda. We're talking about climate change today. And don't turn off because... <laughs> It's important that you keep listening. And the majority of Australians we have, this was a major issue for them over a decade ago when they when the Kevin Rudd 07, Kevin 07 campaign was, was in full swing and that was one of the big things for voters that they voted on, which is climate change. But they've become disaffected. It's quite a boring topic for people these days, Keith. And we think, well, we've just been talking about the fact that we think it's mainly because scientists are just bad at communicating. They're bad at communicating. And you've also got financial incentives on the part of some people to say it is boring, therefore you don't pay attention to it. Ian Dunlop and his team have put together some interesting reports. The one I'm looking at here is called Disaster Alley, Climate Change, Conflict and Risk, looking at some of the problems that we will face within the Pacific Islands. Remember the New Zealand government years ago said that they will now recognise a new type of refugee. So a refugee is a person with a well-founded fear of persecution. And the persecution on the grounds of of race or religion, uh, gender. It's really a a reflection of the persecution of Jews in World War II, which the Western countries did not do enough to save. So after the war, they invented a new branch of international law called refugee law. And so as a refugee, you've got to have a well-founded fear of persecution. The New Zealand government years ago said... That's not really adequate because we now have people who are environmental refugees. No one's persecuting them, and yet they cannot remain on their little Pacific islands because of the rising oceanic tides and because of the severity of the storms now sweeping across the South Pacific. And so uh, within the Pacific, we we are looking at threats of mass movement of peoples, uh, having to evacuate people from islands in, immediately to our north in Papua New Guinea. The Carteret Islands are going underwater. As you walk along the beach, the water begins to move up around your feet. It's a very unnerving feeling. It's like being on a raft which is leaking. So they're the Carteret Islands. Um, and, and, of course, there are other islands closer to uh, New Zealand, which New Zealand has said, yes, once your islands become uninhabitable, we will take them over. Uh, we'll take over the population and you can come and live in New Zealand. So Ian Dunlop and his team are talking about this as being a threat to our very existence. So on the one hand, you've got the environmental lawyers, etc., tinkering around the edges with Kyoto Protocol and all the rest of it. Ian Dunlop has said, that's not enough. We need to create a climate emergency. And, of course, we're now getting, by the way, cities around the world declaring a climate emergency. And I think Sydney has been thinking about this, but certainly when you go to other cities in Europe, as we speak, they're having a heat wave in Europe. I mean, look at Venice as well. That place is sinking. That's right. They're in big trouble. Why does Australia not seem to care when we will be the ones that are inundated with these environmental refugees from around the Pacific? We will be surrounded by areas that get swallowed. Absolutely. But, of course, remember, we don't like asylum seekers. Therefore, even though the number coming to this country is minute by global standards, nonetheless, we feel threatened by the people arriving. And that gives rise to this whole debate about asylum seekers. You know, people know what Bondi Beach is like and they assume that the whole of Australian coastline looks like Bondi Beach. It doesn't. (laughs) It's actually very hard to sail to Australia. We are surrounded by a giant moat. It's very different when you're in Europe where in theory and practice you can walk from Syria into Germany or in the Americas where you can walk from Mexico into the United States. You can't do that in Australia. We're surrounded by a giant moat. But nonetheless, politicians like to play the fear card. Now, what Ian Dunlop is actually doing without 
uh, sort of talking about that in this sort of language, but it seems to me that if other politicians can do well by talking about fear, then we should be doing the same about climate change. So rather than calling it existential risk, which sounds like academic jargon, I would say that we should be talking about the, the threat to the existence of the entire planet to things like in superannuation schemes, mm. for example. You know, those wealthy Australians on a per capita basis, we're probably the fourth richest country in the world per capita basis. We have a lot of people tied up, a lot of money tied up in real estate and in stocks and bonds. We could see those, being, those investments being jeopardised as climate change gets worse, as companies go out of business, etc. So I think that what is required is more of a campaign which just simply plays that fear card and use language which actually then resonates with the general public. And who do that best? It's the kids, the youngsters who are with the Extinction Rebellion. They are the ones who are communicating very well on this. Now, you've got older people who are saying, oh, they're kids, we can ignore them. But it seems to me the kids are the ones who are in touch with how you communicate. Oh, particularly in terms of social media, their awareness, their over-communication with each other constantly. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. They can play a valuable role in this case. Absolutely. And it's been said that science advances one death at a time. In other words, the older scientists die off. That's how you create space for new ideas. Perhaps you could say the same about politics, that as older people die off, then you're going to get a new generation coming through who really don't need to be convinced that we have a problem with climate change. I guess Ian would say, well, that's not going to happen fast enough. We need to be taking drastic steps now. And, and we are almost gone to a wartime footing. If you go back to World War II and you look at the measures that the American government introduced after Pearl Harbor, remarkable transformation of the US economy for four years. What, what did they do? Well, um, President Roosevelt in January 1942, Lester Brown of the World Wash Institute, the environmental group, talks about this ex- as an example of what could be done. So Pearl Harbor occurred on December 7, 1941, the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. In January of 1942, so a few weeks later, the president addressed Congress and set out what America was going to do to win the war. Remember, the British and the, the Commonwealth allies had been fighting on their own along with some of the countries in Europe. Suddenly, the America was forced into World War II by the Japanese attack. And so the United States was going to take on Japan and Germany and Italy. And so the president listed all the things that were going to get done to win the war. Uh, and he said, we're going to build X, X thousands of ships and aircraft, etc." His audience was stunned. Never had so many pieces of military equipment been built by any one country in any war. It couldn't be done. In fact, I might say that by 1945, the Americans had exceeded everything on that list. And with a lot of creative thinking, Kaiser Shipbuilding, for example, needed to employ women to help with building the ships. Rosie the Riveter, President Obama's mother-in-law, was Rosie the Riveter, right? So the women were mobilised to build the ships because the men would have got off to fight the war. Who's going to look after the children? Kaiser said, we will provide childcare facilities in the shipbuilding facilities. Your kids will be able to watch you build ships. Incredibly imaginative. Very progressive. Very progressive. And so the president also said that, in effect, no, no private cars will be built for civilian use between 1941 and the end of the war, which was 1945. And so there was a slogan 
if you are driving alone, you are driving with Hitler. So that was how they were trying to mobilise people for this struggle. It was a, a big exhibition of women's fashion put on uh, at the Smithsonian Exhibition in Washington uh, a couple of years ago. And a, a woman who donated her clothes, very older American woman, said that she did not buy any clothes, new fashionable clothes, between 1942 and 1945 because it was unpatriotic to be seen spending money on expensive clothing when your kith and kin were fighting overseas or whatever. That was all part of that mobilisation mentality. Now, Lester Brown um, has said what we need is that similar sort of mobilisation in order to take on climate change. And America has done it in the past. Is it able to do us at the moment? The, ar- the argument at the moment is no. The well, Americans can't. can't even agree that there's a problem. Well, that's under Trump, it's not going to happen. No. It's a really worrying situation. And, and so we look for the leadership amongst teenagers. They get it. So who can then take the lead worldwide? Who's got a big enough voice? I mean, Australia can be influential. We're too small a country. Who can take the lead on climate change? Because China is doing a lot, China is doing a lot. China is, is well aware. It's now got an emerging middle class. And middle class people don't like having factories on their street. So the Chinese are actually trying to clean up the air. Uh, they're, still, they're still a major producer of coal, but they're looking for alternative supplies of things like wind energy, solar energy, etc. So the Chinese are doing that. European Union also. And that little country, Denmark, has become the pioneer in wind power. And so they make money out of selling all the wind power equipment. It can be done, but it requires political leadership and that will come from the masses at the moment. It's coming mainly from children. So there are lots of opportunities in creating a green economy and we've got to be thinking more about this. The problem is that we've also got to be able to produce transition strategies. We can't say to coal miners, we're going to stop all production of coal. You can't mm. because we're still so reliant upon coal. What we need is a transition strategy because coal is going to be around for an awfully long time yet, but we have to phase it out and phase in alternative ways of producing energy, and look after the workers. They are the casualties of change and they should be looked after. They shouldn't just be discarded as happened in West Virginia. So they need to merge them into newer environments. Yep, and retrain them for the new era. Yeah, right. And just very quickly, let's leave it on a very Australian note. What does our leadership need to do? What does Scott Morrison and his government need to do in the next few years? Well, Scott Morrison's just got to believe that climate change is a problem. You know, it's really as basic as that. Ian Dunlop's document, um, recommendation number one, understand the risks. Establish a top-level climate and conflict task force in Australia to urgently examine the existential risks of climate change and develop risk management techniques and policy-making methodologies appropriate to the challenge. And one of the best arguments I ever hear as well, Keith, just having chats with people at barbecues and whatnot, is, well, it's a big gamble to not do anything. It is, and there, there is a school of thought which calls it um, a um, no-regret strategy. In other words, let's assume that climate change mm. is, is a complete furphy, there is no problem, but in the meantime, you've introduced um, energy-saving light bulbs into your house. You have reduced your energy bill. So even if you're not saving the environment, you are saving money for yourself by being careful about recycling and the light bulbs that you use and, and walking far more, using the car far less, that's healthy as well, to walk far more. Mm. There are things that you can do to save the earth because my view is that if you look after the earth, the earth will look after you. Well said, Keith. Thank you. 
Global Truths was presented by Dr. Keith Suter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.